So let me call us to worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Welcome each and every one of you here and say Merry Christmas. We're glad to see you. I know many of you are putting some things on hold with your family today, but we appreciate you being here once every seven to eight years as the calendar rotates around. We get a chance to worship here on this Sunday morning and Christmas Day. So we are so glad that you're here. Uh, we, we don't have any other ministries after this today. And so uh, unless you're faithfully involved in prayer by yourself here this evening about 6 p.m., you could come and hang out. But we've given you the day off to spend time with family. And so we encourage you to do that. What an opportunity to just uh, enjoy the day together. We do have some prayer requests and things that are there listed for you in the bulletin. Uh, sometimes we print all kinds of lists, um, but we've tried to keep those before you for those who are keeping us updated. Uh, we do want you to know we take those seriously, and there is a prayer card in your pew. Uh, we would love to have you fill that out if you have a prayer request, and we would love to pray for you as you face circumstances and, and go through trials and uh, situations in your life. If you're visiting with us, we know you're here with family, and if you may not be back again because you're out of state, we understand. But if you are in town and you're visiting with someone and you uh, would like to leave us a note that says you are a visitor and you're a guest here, and we'd be glad to reach out to you and minister to you and your family any way that we can. So if you'll fill out that guest card, and when the offering plate comes by this morning, just place that in the offering plate, or you can just put it on the table out in the foyer so that we'll have a record of your visit as well. And obviously we have flowers that have been given uh, in memory of and in honor of. And so if you're one of those who did that and you're here this morning, I think you are welcome after the service to pick up your flower and take it so that you can either take it back home or give it to whom it was that you wanted if you're planning on doing that. So please know right after service, you're welcome uh, to do that as well. But we're so glad that you're here. We hope that you'll enjoy. Our choir is going to be leading us. We want you to participate in it. If you have a bulletin to follow along, going to be a wonderful service about why God gave us his only begotten son. And so we encourage you to follow along this morning as well. But let me take a moment and lead us to the throne of grace in prayer. And if you're visiting with us inside the red hymn book, you'll see the Lord's Prayer if you need that. And in just a moment as I lead us in prayer, if you'll join me in the Lord's Prayer together as we conclude. So let's take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, it's this day. It's this day so many years ago we celebrate as your son is revealed to us, as he has become flesh, the word made flesh to dwell among us, that we would behold the glory of the only begotten, your son given to us so that we might be set free from our sins, our guilt and our misery, and be brought into a right relationship with you. Lord, I pray this morning that as we gather together, we can set all things aside for just a moment that we might hear the truths of your word, that we might let them pierce our hearts, and that we would realize that your love was for us, personally for us, that you might change us, remake us, and make us just what you want us to be. Lord, I do lift up each of the prayer requests this morning. Lord, we pray for those who've been in, in and out of the hospital, those who are going through treatments, those who've had surgery. Lord, we just pray for those who are hurting, those who are going through the memory of the loss of a loved one this time of year, those that are remembering the days that they had together. Lord, bring comfort to them. Bring encouragement to others. Lord, let them know that we're praying for them, that we miss them, and we await the day they can return to worship with us. But Lord, as we gather, we know once more that again, it's not what we've done, it's not what we've accomplished, that we've done absolutely nothing to earn the right to be a part of coming into your presence and experiencing the blessing. But we know your son, Jesus Christ, led the way, opened the veil, and has brought us to the throne of grace, where we can pray together as you taught us, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we spend some time together here, you'll see in your bulletin an opportunity for us to spend time together and share. I've asked Karen if she would help me this morning 
As we go through our Advent reading and candle lighting this morning, it's very simple. John 8 simply says, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And so this morning, we light the one and only Christ candle. It is the symbol we no longer have the expectation of the hope, peace, joy, and love. We actually have him with us. He is our hope, peace, joy, and love. And so my prayer for you this morning is throughout this season and in the weeks to come, you will truly experience and turn to Jesus Christ for those in your life as well. But as we continue on and confess our faith together, it's not just about Jesus Christ and that he was born. It's about all the truths that we learn about him. When you come to a church that is called a confessional church, it's because we hold to a standard. If you're here visiting with us, you might come from a tradition that does readings as well. Uh, we take our readings from different confessions that we support and believe uphold the truths of Scripture. And so this morning, I invite you to confess your faith along with me as we read together in your bulletin. So join me as we read from the Westminster Confession of Faith 8.1 about Christ, our mediator. God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man. As the mediator, he is the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and the judge of the world. God gave to him from all eternity a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Our progress as Christians to one day be that glorified uh, person in the presence of our Father. But we also have an opportunity to confess our sins together. We don't confess them to one another here this morning. We share them and confess them together with one another, knowing that we all come to the throne of grace. We're all able to come in that same place confessing our sins knowing that Christ would forgive us if we do. And so I invite you to not just read the prayer, but to let it become a part of your life and to take just a moment before we pray together to confess your own sins. So I ask in just a moment of silence that you'll take just a moment to say, Lord, I confess, and then you share it with him privately, and then you join me in a minute as we ask him to forgive us our sins. Let's pray. Lord, we confess together, saying, Forgive us our sins, O Lord. Forgive us the sins of our youth and the sins of our age, the sins of our soul and the sins of our body, our secret and our whispering sins, our presumptuous and our careless sins, the sins we have done to please ourselves and the sins we have done to please others. Forgive us the sins that we know and the sins that we know not. Forgive them, O Lord. Forgive them all because of your great goodness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Assurance of pardon is found throughout the scriptures. Each week we stand up here and we could find multiple ones. And you have those as you read yourself. This morning from 1 Timothy we're just reminded that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I encourage you to come to Christ. We celebrate his birth because he came to save us from our sins. I pray that you'll call upon him. At this time, I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward. They're going to help us take up our offering. I'll lead us in prayer, and then our choir can lead us as well. But let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come and prepare to, to give back to you, Father, we are so thankful of all the blessings you've given us. Lord, we're thankful not just for the monetary blessings, but Father, as you've watched over our homes, cared for our children, provided for us in need, found us a place, clothed us. Father, we're reminded that you've done so much to take care of all the, the lilies in the valley and the birds of the air and the flocks of the fields, and yet we're more important. We're the ones you created as the pinnacle. We're the ones you created to have a personal relationship with. 
And Lord, we thank you for providing for us. Lord, as we give back just a portion of what you've blessed us with monetarily, help us to use it to further your kingdom, to spread the gospel around the globe, to provide for the needy, clothes for those without, places for those that need shelter. Let us put it into practice, what you, your son, did for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. you would take your Bibles as we're preparing to go to John chapter 3, a very well-known passage of scripture for all who have been over it, probably one of the most well-known, quoted, and loved verses comes from John 3. This morning I want to take a moment and speak to you about he did this for me, so that wherever you are this morning as we talk about God so loved the world, that you would see it in its context and perspective of knowing just what he has done. My goal is to hopefully help you understand all that he's done in the giving of his son. So that as we celebrate, we understand fully just what God has accomplished. 
So I'm going to read, if I can, the whole section that begins in John chapter 3, verse 1, up through. You all know the story of Nicodemus, but let me read it as we prepare our hearts and preface it for why God gave his son. Beginning in John chapter 3, the gospel, beginning in verse 1 from the ESV, it says this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Just what is it that God has done for me? It begins at the very beginning, and I want to take you on a journey. Hopefully, I can get through it. I told my wife, maybe I can be shorter today and get you all out early and get you home. And she reminded me, with no Sunday school, I could go for two full hours. <laughs> and so I took that as a good thing. But I challenge you this morning, hopefully, we'll get back. But it begins in a section. I'm not going to go verse by verse. I want to take you through the context and get you to the point to understand that Jesus didn't just come for the world. He came for me. He came for me. He came for you. And there's an intention behind it. And it begins in verse 3 when he reaches out to Nicodemus and answers the question. But what's so ironic about all this is do you see what the question Nicodemus asked him was? Go back to verse 2 and look at the actual question that Nicodemus asks. You want me to read it for you again? The man came to Jesus by night. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God and no one can do these things unless God is with him. Did you get the question? Isn't it amazing that Jesus sees through the words of this Israelite teacher and actually answers the question that was never asked? Actually does when he begins to preface in our hearts and how he works in our lives the same way. I've learned over 30 years of ministry that a lot of times things are said and done that are unintended. That's how life is. But I've also learned along the way one of those important truths that many of you have probably heard that many times you have to learn to see what people say and hear what people do. Because sometimes what they say and what they do don't always what? Match. Not in the sense that they contradict, but in the sense that their heart speaks one thing and their actions follow, and yet their words might be another. And that's Nicodemus. He shows up to this teacher, and he simply says, only someone from God can do these things. And God reads through his lips and goes right to his heart. And he says, if I could paraphrase, O oh, you teacher of Israel, unless you are born again, you shall not see the kingdom of heaven. And maybe this Christmas I could start right now and just ask you the question, does God need to hear your actions and read your words? 
Is it this Christmas that you actually are saying on the outside, Merry Christmas, grace to you, peace from God the Father on heaven and earth, Merry, 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 and yet deep in your heart, God simply says, I'm telling you, if you don't surrender it all to me, it will never matter. He sees through the excitement of all the hustle and bustle and says, I'm telling you, if you don't put me first, you'll never understand what the kingdom is about. You see, it's not just the things we're saying on the outside. It's begin to read our heart. Listen to what he says. Unless you're born again, write this down, put it. It's the word anothen. It's the word that we get for being born again every time in John following this. It's actually translated above or anew. It's the word that we get that when Jesus tells Nicodemus something special must happen in your life, Nicodemus, if you're ever going to spend eternity with the Father. You must be born not just from this world, but from above, anothen. You must be born anew. It must come from a different way. It must have an origination from heaven. There's something special about being born from God. Now, we use terminology today, and most of you are familiar with it. It started back in the days of Chuck Colson. If you've read his books or seen his book on Born Again, or you know the Watergate scandals and the things that were involved, and the following presidents up to Jimmy Carter when they started coining a phrase called being born again. If you were born again, the phrase came out when President Jimmy Carter said, I'm a born-again Christian. And folks, that was kind of hard for many people to accept, not because he was saying he was a believer, but he was saying the same thing as if you said, I'm a three-sided triangle. Because how can you have a two-sided triangle? How could you have a four-sided triangle? Well, how can you be a Christian and not be born again? And when the two went together, we became born-again Christians... So that now we began to believe that you could actually be a Christian and not be what? Born again. You could actually say that you were a follower of Christ and not be born from above. We could begin to separate the two. Clear back to the days of Francis Schaeffer when he began to teach us about true truths. Because he began to reach a society that said we live in such a relativistic society today that we have to qualify the truths that we're teaching. Isn't that amazing? That when we now speak of the truths of Scripture, we have to decide which ones are the true truths and which ones we don't have to follow. You see, he reads through Nicodemus and he simply says, you're supposed to be a teacher. And by this time, how are you ever going to understand heavenly things if you can't grasp the earthly? He never asked that question, but God knew his heart. To be born of the Spirit implied this everlasting life that would come from radical change. Being born from above meant that the Spirit was doing the work. He begins to preface that in the text as we go along, and we learn about the work of the pneuma, the Spirit, or the wind. I'll share that with you. But the important thing is he says to Nicodemus, unless there's a radical change that takes place in your life, not only will you not see the kingdom, it's a reference to an everlasting life that we'll see coming up of the ages. You can't experience blessings. You can't capture any of what it's trying to teach. You can't partake of any of its blessings. You can't understand its process and how it works. You can't enjoy any of it. Do you see when he was saying you cannot see the kingdom, what he was saying is you can't be a part of it at all. You can't even see the blessings that come with it. It's amazing when you try to share with people outside the church about the importance of things that go on inside the church. Because if they don't even know what they're missing, why are they concerned about what they're missing? When you can't even see the kingdom, it doesn't even concern you about what it is you're missing in a relationship with God. He's telling Nicodemus, without the work of God, without his work of his Holy Spirit in your heart, you'll not even recognize the things you're missing in the rest of this world. Oh, to be satisfied with this world, to be a teacher in this world, and to accomplish great things was nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Listen to what he goes on to say down in verse 7. He reminds him again. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. You must be born from above. The word must becomes the factor of the sentence here. Why? Because he's not saying as many would interpret it that at some point, Nicodemus, you got to go on and get this done in your life. At some point, you need to make sure you're born again as you work your way through. That's not the interpretation. The word must is the insinuating concept that something must take place in your life before it'll ever work out, before it'll ever make sense, 
before you'll ever taste of the heavenly, as Hebrews reminds us. This morning, it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit begins to stir in your hearts, that you understand beyond Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that even a conversion or a faith is only in response and a secondary work to that of the Holy Spirit. You see, when you're born from above, it's because the Holy Spirit comes to bring radical change, to bring about conversion, and to help you place faith in the one who can deliver you. And he does that all for me. He's done that all for me. I hope you're sitting there realizing that as he tells them the importance about why this must happen, look at verse 8 when he brings in the word pneuma or spirit. The wind blows. That's the same word pneuma that we get for wind or breath. It's the Greek word. Some go back to the Hebrew ruach. You've heard that before. It's the same word for wind, breath, or life, sometimes chosen. But what he's saying is the analogy here in the word that is correctly translated, that nobody can direct the wind. Nobody can understand the ramifications that are going to take place. Nobody knows exactly where it's going to end up or how it actually started. But the one thing we do know is that when the wind blows, it what? It blows. It simply causes change. Everybody gets worried. If the wind blows just a little bit, I know you wake outside sometimes, you wake up in the spring and you think, oh, what a wonderful summer breeze. Well, why is it that when the wind blows softly, it's okay, but when the wind blows more strong or with strength, we begin to fear? Same wind, but when we can't control it or it's not comforting, then we begin to get fearful. And listen to what he says, just as the wind works, so does the Spirit of God. So many of us here this morning love the gentle breeze of the Holy Spirit. I love when God nudges me with his Holy Spirit, reminds me that he loves me. What a wonderful day I've created for you. Wonderful blessings lie ahead. But boy, when the tornado spins, the whirlwinds come, and havoc starts to be wreaked, then I start questioning, God, are you still there? Is this from you? What are you accomplishing? You see, it's all for Nicodemus to try to understand that Nicodemus, none of it will make sense if you don't understand that God's got a plan. He's got something in the works. He's got something more powerful that he's prepared for you. And you're never going to understand it. You'll never be able to relate to it if you don't understand earthly things. Because the heavenly things deal with the Spirit of God. The heavenly deals with his work in your heart. The heavenly begins with this powerful change. And sometimes it's destructive. Or better yet, we would say constructive. Sometimes God needs to blow hard enough in your life that he can rid you of all the things that are in the way of you truly understanding what it is he has for you. Sometimes he blows so hard that some things in your life is almost devastating. And you ask yourself, I don't know that I could handle much more. And he's brought you just to the place where you realize, I've got a plan. And the Spirit is working just like the wind. You don't know when it's going to stop, where it's going to stop, and what all is going to be accomplished. But he's wanting them to know that God has this ultimately good in mind for you. He has this plan and this purpose that's coming about for you. And any affection at all in your heart that you have toward the Father is because the Spirit's been stirring. Whether it's a still, soft, small voice, we call it, or whether it's the raging wind of life being caught off guard. It's the work of God that brings about this affection that makes you want to ask the question, where are you, God? What are your plans for me? You see, this morning, Nicodemus, as would it be in our place, is learning that God's got something special for us, but he's got to bring us to the point that we understand what's going on now before we'll ever understand the deeper truths. Do you understand here this morning that you can never enter the kingdom of heaven on your own? Do you understand that you cannot get to it on your own physical works, your own physical efforts? There's not a multiple paths, there's not many choices, and there's not several different signals that you can follow to get there. There's one simple way. And it begins by understanding that you must be born again. That you must understand how the Spirit of God works. 
You must understand that the Spirit of God brings change. And you must understand that that change is for a good purpose. That it's going to bring about what God's plan is for you. Down in verse 12, he begins to pick up. If I have told you these earthly things and you do not believe them, how are you going to believe me when I tell you these? If I told you to just simply follow me and you can't do that, how am I going to tell you about the heavenly realm and then you do that? If I'm telling you that you simply need to read your Bible and you can't do that, how are you going to understand prayer? If I talk to you about obedience, how are you going to understand discipleship if you can't do the little things? We've taught our children from many years past. Probably many of you have said the same thing over and over. How can I trust you with big things if you can't be faithful in what? Little things. Well, let's just reword it into the scriptural trend. Let's just start telling our children, man, listen, if you can't understand the earthly things, you're never going to grasp the what? The spiritual. If you can't do the surface, you're never going to grab the deep. He's taking Nicodemus and he's simply saying there's something greater coming. There's something greater. And it's all for you. I know it's for me. Listen to what he says, verse 14. This is the spiritual truth. He's going back into historical activity. He's going back to actual accounts. He's going to tell them something that's going to amaze him. You want to get a little deeper than just what it is that you're doing as a leader? Let's grasp the spiritual application. And he says, as Moses has lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, folks, I hope you grasp that analogy. It goes back to Numbers chapter 21. If you don't know the story, it was because the people were with Moses and they all started falling themselves, struck and sick and dying from the bite of the serpent. It was the deathly bite. The people were now dying. They needed a way to stop. It was a 100% death rate. Everybody was dying. And God said to Moses, take the, the serpent the crafted golden or bronze serpent and lift it up. And anyone who lifts their eyes and believes in this serpent shall be what? Delivered from death. Isn't that amazing? A 100% success rate. That you could take a serpent and raise it up and people could cast their eyes and gaze upon it and put their faith in that and a 100% cure rate. Wouldn't it have been nice if we could have through the pandemic created a golden mask, raised it up, and for anyone who would have trusted in it, 100% success. Oh, I know I'm being facetious, but think about this. If we could have created the vaccine that was fail-proof, and that you could take it and guarantee that it would not come to you if you would just trust in it. You see how hard that is? We've tried so many things so many times that haven't worked. And Jesus simply says to Nicodemus, it's just like the serpent. Spiritually, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. And anyone who can cast their eyes upon him it's a 100% success rate. We cannot find an example of someone who placed their faith in Jesus Christ, whose Holy Spirit brought about change, brought about regeneration, reworked the power in their lives, and were not saved. If they cast their eyes upon him, not to the serpents made of bronze, but to the cross of Christ where Jesus would go. All of that is this casting ahead as we would celebrate what it is that God would have done and that he would do it for me, that this would be done for me, that the Son of Man would be lifted up, that there wouldn't just be a possible way. It wouldn't just be one way, but it would be the only possible way. The only way for them to look to the serpent or to be healed was to look to the serpent that was raised up. And the only way to be healed from a guilty conscience, from a sinful life, to be cleansed from Jesus is to look to him. Not just a possible way, but the only possible way to be delivered from your condition. So he takes Nicodemus 
to the most important part when he finally says the story that we all know. If you're prepped now to understand that it's all about God and what he has given us and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, think about this. How is this going to happen for me? I can imagine this great leader looking at Jesus and saying, look, I can't be born again. I get that. I can't go back into the womb. I get that. I don't understand some of these truths. I get that. And God's got to work in my heart and get that. But when does this all begin? How is this going to take place for me? His response is not just a favorite verse that is used throughout history. It's the response of how it must happen. And it happened for me. And it can happen for you. When you understand that God so loved the world. That his only begotten son, he gave. That's the Greek order. That whoever would believe would not perish, but have everlasting life. So what does that mean? Well, it's all about the author God. Let me just say that quickly as we go forward. What does John 3.16 really imply? That it's God the one who gave his son. Listen to the actual order of the statement. It is God who gave. It is his only begotten son that he gave. It's all the focus on God. Folks, I'm not saying it's not about Christ. Please don't leave today and say, well, the pastor said it's not about Jesus and Jesus is important. That's not true. But it's all about the father. It was the father who gave his son. It was the father who planned to do this. It was the father that put it out there. It was the character of the almighty that we begin to be drawn into so that you could have a personal relationship with him. When you ask yourself about who God is, listen to the story. It was God who loved us. What kind of love is this? The word that is used is agapesen. It's the aorist tense of the verb. Aorist, those of you who are English teachers know, it's that aorist tense that begins somewhere back way in the past and continues to apply to today. Can you imagine if I gave you just a little bit of a hint just how far back in the past the love of God actually began? You want me to give you a hint? Goes a little bit beyond Isaiah, a little bit beyond Abraham. It goes a little bit farther back than Adam, even goes even back beyond the days of creation. I'd say it'd go back beyond God, but that'd be a little too far who said that. It goes back to the beginning, where even in the time of creation, we get that expression, let us make man in our image. When Hebrews reminds us that it was the word that dwelt over everything, it was the spirit that hovered apart. But what we realize is that the love of God isn't something that began with the birth of Jesus Christ. It isn't something that began with the cross of Christ. It isn't something that began with the prophecy about Jesus Christ. It's the love of God that began from the beginning, that he foreloved you. For whom God foreknew, he predestined. In whom he predestined, he called. In whom he called, he justified. In whom he justified, he what? glorified. We're talking about the Almighty Father that gave His Son. You didn't earn it. He wasn't trying to pay a balance. He wasn't trying to get even. He wasn't trying to settle the score. It wasn't that He had to do this. This is about a Father who expresses His love by giving, the sacrificial giving. No different than when you gave your very best male without blemish to the point of death in order that he would become the sacrifice to bring cleansing. You see, it's all about God. I hate to tell you this, but I think we could go back to tell Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you got it all wrong. Because you got this understanding that being a Christian is all about me. It's all about how my life has changed. It's all about how I'm serving Christ. It's all about how I'm doing the right things. It's all about how I'm involved in church. You've got this picture that being a Christian is all about you. And that's part of the biggest problem. Oh, you remember the little kid's story? The old definition of sin? The biggest problem with sin is that the I in the middle is who? Me. It's still all about me. It's about what I'm doing for the Lord, what I've been called to accomplish, what I'm going to do for him. And John 3.16 reminds us it's not about you. Praise God he chose you. That he even considered you. That he even reached out to you. That he would even think of the possibility of you. Because you were the one that inherited a nature of guilt and rebellion. You were the one that have turned your back on him. We've all, like sheep, gone astray. 
And yet God so loved the world. It's in its international sense throughout John. I'd give you all these verses. Come and see me afterward. I'll give them to you. But you could go back to John 4, or in John 4, 12, 129, 3, 16, and 17, John 6, 33, and 51, 8, 12, 9, 5, 12, 46, in every case in which the word for world is interpreted in its international sense and saying his people from around the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not that everybody in the world is saved, but that his people from all over the world will be saved. That those who believe from every parts of the world would be saved. It's the accuracy that Revelation reminds us that around the throne of God, there will be people from every nation and every tongue, but not every person from every nation and every tongue. There's always the flip side that just like the golden serpent, there would be those that would die because they would refuse to cast their gaze upon the serpent lifted up. This morning I ask you, Openly, yet privately. Have you cast your gaze upon Jesus Christ? Or are you still trying to handle the sickness of sin by yourself? Oh, Jesus isn't just a possible way. He's the only possible way. Cast your vision on him. Why him? Because listen to what he said. God so loved us, he gave us his what? His only begotten son. The Messiah. The one that was promised. The one that was willing. The one that would take our sins. Cleanse us. Prepare us. Make us ready just by having faith and trust in him. Listen to the world as he says to this, as he tells us about our guilt and what is necessary about believing in him. How many times that we are told throughout that we must believe in Jesus Christ in order to accomplish this purpose. The word believe, pistuo, as you know, comes from the same noun word pistos. I've shared that with you before. One of my favorite lines is I tell you many times my kids get me so pissed off I can't stand it. And it's because what they do is they drive me to the point that I have to place more faith in Jesus Christ. I have to be able to trust him more for what's going to come. But the word pistuo, which comes from that word pistos, that means faith, the noun, is the active form of the verb because John says you must believe. He never uses the noun faith. If you were to write it out, it would say something like this. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever is faithing in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But we don't know what it means to be faithing. And so we put it into the word, John did, Holy Spirit given, that we must believe. The problem with that is believe is the action of faith. It is the constant trust, the constant following, the constant casting our gaze upon him. It is the nonstop activity of the one who trusts in God. The problem with that is in our society, we take the word believe, and rather than casting it as its word of trusting in someone, we simply delegate it to the relation of knowledge. And as long as you know about Jesus, know who he is, and know what he can do, well, then you'll be all right. And oh, I pray the wind blows on you. And not just a gentle breeze. So that you would come to understand his purpose. Which is what? That anyone who believes should not perish. Isn't it amazing that he addresses that first? He doesn't say whoever believes has everlasting life. You don't have to worry about perishing. He says if you believe, you don't perish. Because that's the instantaneous plan that we need. That's the mixed immediate context that we have. Because if you don't believe in Jesus Christ and you don't cast your eyes upon him, the result is to perish. That's where you're headed. It's not that you have to do something horribly wrong. You don't have to be a horrible, evil person. You don't have to be in sinful acts every day. It's not that what you're doing that makes you go to hell. You're going to hell because you were born a sinner, guilty. You inherited a nature in rebellion against God. And the very next stop for you after this life is eternity separated from the Father. To perish from his presence. 
unless he's done for you what he's done for me. That he sent his Holy Spirit to work in my heart to give me an affection for Jesus Christ. To know that he's working all things through his son who he gave me freely. That I could obtain the purpose which is to not perish but to have what? Everlasting life. Oh, I don't do it a lot of times but I want to read something to you. Everlasting life is the adjective put on life, zoe, it's the word ionos, which is the term that we get that talks about a difference in quality. When we talk about everlasting, it's the word we use for ages, it's the word for eternal. It means there's something different in quality than what we have now. The life that is everlasting has a better quality than the life that we have now, without. It's not just how long it is, it's the quality of life that you have. And yet people turn it down. I don't usually read a lot, but I would like to do this this morning. Bear with me. This is from R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul. He's written many, many multiple books. Many of you know him, the head of Ligonier Ministries that continues on. He writes this, and I read to you about Jesus. Please listen. Suppose there actually is a God in heaven, and suppose this God created the world and everything in it. Suppose that in the process of making a myriad of species of birds, fish, and animals, he formed human beings in his image and gave them the most exalted position in all of creation. Suppose God said, you will be holy even as I am holy, and gave them only one command to obey. And yet 15 minutes after he made them, these human beings revolted against him by doing the very thing he commanded them not to do. Suppose then that God said, I'm going to provide a way for you to escape my judgment. And he then called Abraham out of paganism, brought him to himself and said, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. Suppose that he blessed all the descendants of Abraham, expanded them into the whole world and said, through this one nation, I'm going to bless the whole world. But this nation repeatedly turned against him. Suppose God sent prophets to those people to tell them to come back to him, just as an unfaithful spouse would return to his or her partner. But the people killed the prophets. And suppose God finally said, I love you so much that even though you are a stiff-necked people, that I'm going to send my eternal, only begotten son to you. Yet the people rose up against his son and crucified him. Just suppose that God loved the people enough in all of this that while they were in the very act of killing his son, he transferred the sins of his people to his son and said, if you'll just put your trust in him, if you'll just confess your sins and believe in him, If you'll turn your gaze upon Jesus, then you will not experience death. I'm going to give you eternal life with no pain, no tears, no evil, and no darkness. If God were to do all that, would you have the insolence to say to him, God, you still haven't done enough for this world that hates you. Are you one who gets angry when you hear that there's only one way to God? He writes, the question is not why is there only one way. The question is, why is there even one way to God? And the answer, he loved me. He did this for me because he loved me and he loves you. And so he even provided the way that you could spend eternity with him and not face the penalty and punishment for your sin. Oh, I encourage you in the last verse, verse 17, He simply said, Jesus came to save. 
I remind you like the people bit by the serpents, like the Israelites who looked up to that bronze statue. This morning I challenge you, look up. Cast your gaze upon Jesus Christ. 100% healing rate. 100% opportunity and chance to spend eternity with the Father. Everlasting life in Jesus Christ. He did this for me. And he's done this for you. Now that's a merry, merry Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you would provide even a way. That as we rebelled, turned our backs, as we ran from you to hide, you sought us out. You seek the reconciliation. You provide every opportunity. You fill us with your Holy Spirit. You give us your only Son. You love us as your very own. Fathers, we prepare to share, to share together the Lord's Supper, I pray. That if there is one here this morning that simply says, man, I too, I too want to know that I will not be punished forever. I want to gaze upon Jesus Christ. I place my faith in him. I turn my eyes toward him. I cast my sin on him. Jesus, heal me, forgive me, and cleanse me, and help me. Give me the grace and faith to trust in you this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. As we get ready to prepare for the Lord's Supper this morning, we're going to do it a little different. We're going to sing while we pass and do things, but we're going to begin by singing together hymn number 230, the first verse. I'm going to invite you to remain seated while we sing hymn number 230, Thou who was rich be all beyond all splendor. Hymn number 230. the table, I'm going to ask those who are going to help distribute the Lord's Supper here this morning to come forward. I want to invite you this morning, if you're here visiting with us, if you've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, you are a believer, you've been born again, uh, we encourage you to be actively involved in a church, you support the church, one that practices discipline. What we're really saying is we want you to be in a relationship with God. You might be here this morning and say, well, I'm in a relationship, but it's not that right. Well, what better way to make it right than to come to Jesus Christ and say, help me. Fill me, cleanse me, I'm your child. So this morning, if you've made a profession of faith, we invite you to take with us. If you haven't made a profession of faith, children, if you're thinking about that profession of faith, you're working with your parents, I encourage you to make that step, to cast your eyes upon Jesus Christ and to not wait and to not prolong so that you can too be healed completely. I'm gonna ask that as they begin to pass this out, we are going to sing together before we pass or as we pass the bread and prepare. I ask that you take one, hold on to it. You can open your hymn book as we sing. There is packages of a rice cake instead if you would rather have that. But let's sing together verse two as they pass out the bread.
take a moment and pray while you're waiting as they disperse. I'll read in just a moment. First Corinthians 11, Paul wrote in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It was to the disciples that he broke that bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. In the same way as we pass out the bread, as they distribute the drink, if you would please take a cup and hold on to it until we can all participate together. I'll read some things and then we'll sing the third stanza as they're passing it out, if you would please. When Paul wrote in Hebrews, as we've been studying so many times, we're reminded about the blood of the bull and the goats. Let me again remind, if you're here visiting with us, the importance of the blood of Christ. When Christ appeared, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer can sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's sing together that third verse as we sing, Thou who was rich beyond all splendor. wrote in the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine themselves then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
He took the cup of the table and he said, this is my blood, a new covenant poured out for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let me lead us in prayer as our choir will come and help us as we sing our closing song. Heavenly Father, I thank you again that this day we could worship, that we could come to your presence, come as a body, come as a family, and sing praises to your name, to open our hearts and our minds, to be filled with the truth. Lord, help us to know you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to experience your love and help us to cast our eyes upon Jesus. For in him we shall be saved. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you, keep you, and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his countenance toward you and give you peace. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Have a great Lord's Day and Merry Christmas.